Hello. This is Computer Girl, from the song Computer Girl. Christian and Monty re-recorded their interview for this revised episode 3. Enjoy a slightly better listening experience. Humans remain fallible. It's not too difficult to discover groups who are just beginning long and shiny careers, but how about discovering a group that is a total failure? An accomplishment indeed. Also, where can I get a bunk bed for my two English Springer Spaniels? Dance, goddammit, it's all you ever think about is Sparks. Thanks for clicking play. This is All You Ever Think About is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast about the band Sparks on the internet. I'm your host, Christian Huey. In the next couple of episodes, we'll be following Ron, Russell, and the boys and Half Nelson on their journey to being a signed rock band and ultimately finding enlightenment and thenceforth earning the new name Sparks. This episode has two parts. Part the first, I relay more of the Sparks saga to you, dear listener, myself. And in part two, I'm proud to present what will hopefully be the first of many interviews with Monty Mallon, host of his own podcast, So Important, as well as the author of the Sparks Drummer Project. Today, he's going to be talking mostly about Harley Feinstein with us, who is Sparks Drummer for their uh, first two officially released albums for Bearsville Records. Most of the words that you heard me say at the cold open were written by Los Angeles-based journalist Kathy Orloff. And I'm going to get into the doggy beds. Uh, that article contained the first and only interview Half Nelson had given for publication in 1970. Despite the inauspicious lead paragraph, Orloff goes on to proclaim herself a fan of the band and her October 17th article for UK music zine Sounds. Um, somewhat inelegantly, but still well-intentioned, she even declares Half Nelson to be, quote, underground favorites of the recording company underground. As measured as the article was in its support, it was a feather in Half Nelson's cap, and they would immediately add the article to their press package, with the copy proudly taped to the wall next to their myriad rejection letters in their home away from home, the North Hollywood Doggy Bunk Bed Factory. Yes, you can take the boys out of the joke shop, but you cannot keep the joke shop out of the lives of the male brothers. Their rehearsal space at that time was indeed a working factory that manufactured beds for pooches. Um, in an act of uncommon magnanimity, uh, one of their bass players, short-lived, known only as Neil, whom Ron and Russell hired and quickly fired, uh, allowed the boys to use his father's workplace as a rehearsal space uh, when parts of it were not in use. The Doggy Factory would serve as Half Nelson's de facto headquarters in between gigs at delicatessens and high schools and even one highly improbable Mormon dance event. It was where they performed for the record execs who were curious enough to take the time to come and see what this quirky act was all about. Most prominently, it was the space where weirdo rock wonderkind 
Todd Rungren, that's all hard to say, decided to stake his reputation as well as the dollars of the record company that employed him on Half Nelson. The band at that time was comprised of two sets of brothers and drummer Harley Feinstein. Russell had long since, of course, decided definitively that he would hand over bass guitar duties to a hired hand, and that was Earl's exceptionally talented younger brother, Jim. He was so talented, in fact, he was by all accounts a more accomplished guitarist than Earl, but Earl leveraged his older brother's status by forcing Jim to play a different instrument. Rundgren agreed to an invitation by Mike Burns to attend a musical showcase at the Doggy Factory, where Half Nelson would perform to an audience of four. To their embarrassment and dismay, Half Nelson had to reschedule at the last minute the first planned showcase for Rundgren and company due to Feinstein's broken arm. But the rescheduled performance went without a hitch. Rungren brought along engineer and later Sparks producer James Thaddeus Lowe, as well as Rungren's girlfriend Christine and Lowe's wife Pamela. It is unknown whether it was Rungren himself or Miss Christine of the Zappa-affiliated all-girl band the GTOs, and yes, the Miss was part of her handle, who was the most convinced of Half Nelson's potential. But one thing that soon became known was that Miss Christine and Russell Mail were having a dalliance of their own at the time. Indeed, as time went on, Miss Christine ended up favoring Russell's charms over Todd's, although, thankfully, this didn't seem to keep a record from getting made. Love triangles aside, Bearsville Records via Rungren and Lowe were intrigued by Half Nelson's demo record, and they wanted to see what the band could do live. Lowe and his wife were already fans of the song Roger, which they considered the highlight of the demo record uh, Bearsville received from Half Nelson. Lowe was especially keen to hear newer material that might be of a piece with it. He was not disappointed by either the quirkiness of the new songs nor the band's showmanship in that private concert. These are some of Lowe's own words at the time. They were a bit nervous at first, but when they went into the set, they just hit it. There's no way to play Half Nelson music tentatively. You are committed as soon as the first falsetto note comes out of the singer's mouth. This was like a trip to another world. My God, it was all as weird as Roger. And it wasn't just about the music. Half Nelson put on a full theatrical experience. They adorned spacey costumes. Uh, Russell sang a ballad, Slow Boat, on a giant papier-mâché boat on wheels. They even added pre-recorded audience noises, cheering them on, and they had a fake concession stand. Also, the endless rehearsals had definitely paid off. The private concert was a smash. The only thing left to do was to convince the label's head, Albert Grossman, of Half Nelson's commercial viability. Luckily for the band, Grossman had trusted Rundgren's instincts implicitly. Grossman himself was a fairly big dog in the music industry, having managed Bob Dylan and having recently signed Foghat, who, although they weren't huge yet, they of course would go on to score a massive hit for the label with Slow Ride in 1975. Grossman never knew exactly what to make of Half Nelson, but he did eventually relay to the boys rather pointedly what he thought stood in the way of them and international success. It was the name. It was too... wrestly. Not catchy enough. Never mind Russell's insistence that Half Nelson was a reference to an exotic Japanese sex act. Not true. 
To Grossman, the chief draw of the band was their humor, or so he told them after a few dinners in upstate New York at a nice Szechuan place. After the first Half Nelson record failed to catch fire, he urged them to change their name to something that would channel their wacky side. Grossman seemed to be a fan of the Marx Brothers, and he saw some similarities. So, in a classic example of the raw uncreativity of clueless industry execs, Grossman offered up the moniker Sparks Brothers. Although the band, of course, thought it was too cute by half, they acquiesced, and by the time of the re-release of the album a year later, they were initially advertised as the Sparks Brothers, soon shortened to Sparks as a compromise. Grossman and Rungren agreed uh, when they signed Half Nelson in late 1970 that what they needed was a brand new album to put out, something with professional polish, which the band was happy to do. What they were less happy about was Grossman's insistence that they dump their friend and manager Mike Burns for old-school, cigar-chomping Hollywood heavyweight Roy Silver. Silver was an intimidating presence, but he did start landing real gigs for the band, Half Nelson also became increasingly annoyed with their recording sessions with Rundgren. The sessions seemed to stretch on forever, as Ron later related. Sure, Rundgren had similar musical interests, but the band felt he was pushing too many of his own ideas onto the proceedings. It was a case of too many cooks. By accounts, Rundgren was nice enough and plenty professional, but he was also riding a wave of critical adulation for his 1970 album Runt and he felt the need to put his imprimatur on everything he produced. Ron, for his part, would later cop to pushing back on Rungren a bit too aggressively, which discouraged their producer from showing up a whole lot in the later sessions. James Lowe, who picked up the slack when Rungren wasn't around, later offered the narrative that Rungren simply found himself spinning too many plates at once and just didn't have the time or the energy to devote to Half Nelson once the ball really got rolling in the studio. At any rate... Lowe was as impressed, if not more so, with Half Nelson's off-kilter sound and subject matter and showed himself to be a skilled hand at the decks and a nice guy to boot. Half Nelson was finally released on Bearsville with 12 songs on the record. Just two tracks from the 1969 demo album made the transition, but uh, a much stronger and confident, still plenty weird set of songs took their place. Let's take a closer look at the songs of Half Nelson, shall we? A nine-note guitar riff sounding like the waddle of a lost duck is the opening salvo of Half Nelson's first official album. At least I think it's a guitar. Wonder Girl is so un-rock and roll, uh, so pedestrian on an, and stayed even on its surface, it takes a couple of listens to realize how ballsy a choice it is for the lead single on an unknown band's debut album. Wonder Girl sounds like the way Ron Mayo looked on stage in 1971. Like there's an inner voice instructing its subject to keep it together, dude, at least for the next three minutes. The unofficial, by now, video for the song, a live quote-unquote performance on German television from 1972, shows the band pantomiming to the music, as was the style at the time, while a herd of white Euro teens, who seemingly are given instructions to dance and then freeze at appropriate moments in the song. The term dance here is used loosely, but to be fair, Wonder Girl was never designed to be a disco hit. 
In the video, we see a rough draft version of Ron and Russell's trademark visual presentation with some early differences. Wearing a conservative suit and tie, Russell mugs, eyes forever agog, with curly locks cascading over his shoulders. Ron, pre-haircut, looks like Russell's evil twin, with goth eyeliner to boot, but with his mainstay toothbrush mustache present in all its whimsical slash unsettling glory. And while Russell is bug-eyed in a welcoming sort of excitement, Ron sneers and glares at the camera each chance he gets. And thus, the good twin-evil twin dynamic was minted, and they would keep these basic onstage personae to this very day. Wonder Girl is a severely disciplined tune, and in retrospect, you can hear the seeds of New Wave planted here, but it frankly must have been kind of a shock to hear in a year when maximalist rock bands like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath were marrying blues with Wagner, for young people to hear music that sounded like, I don't know, B.J. Thomas having a psychotic episode coming out of their car's new stereo speakers. The arrangement on this song is miles away from the Sid Barrett psychedelia of their abandoned demo album, and one has to wonder if the single's brutal minimalism was calculated for maximum impact. Each member of the band is given the barest minimum of instructions here. There are no solos, no drum fills, and even Russ's falsetto is remarkably restrained. The song works amazingly well as a pop tune, no doubt because of its clear-eyed straightforwardness, at least musically so, and it has a French cabaret vibe to it that would pop up countless times in Sparks' catalog. It's an appetizer, but also a palate cleanser for the rest of the album that proceeds. Lyrically, Wonder Girl is one of Ron's early explorations of frustrated adolescent lust. There's not a whole lot of the lyrical playfulness, or at least that sense of, oh, I see what he did there, that Ron's best lyrics trigger, but there's plenty to like about understated lines like, she was there, and I was pretty glad about that too, knowing that she knew a thing or two. Ned Raggett of All Music Guide wrote decades later about the song, Arguably, the rest of the brothers' career has been a continual refinement from Wonder Girl's basic formula. Track two is Fala Fali. It's another Ron song. I really like this song's driving rhythm. It sounds like an early use of the Motorique beat, courtesy, of course, Harley Feinstein, the drummer. Uh, this beat would go on to form the bedrock of the Krautrock phenomenon with the likes of Noi and Can, uh, Kraftwerk, um, the band is given more to do on this song for sure than it is on the opening track Wonder Girl with plenty of playful keyboard work from Ron. Um, so check out the you know the charge song if you will near the end and some great fretwork from bass player Jim Minky. The lyrics? Well, they seem to tell a story about brother, sister incest. Oh Ron, you cad. Moving on. Uh, track three is Roger. This is one of only two holdovers from the Half Nelson demo album. Uh, Roger looked for a couple of years there to be the band's likeliest shot at scoring a hit single, despite how weird, or maybe because of how weird it sounded. It's a rare Russell penned song, and it's not crystal clear to me what the lyrics are about, but one reading could be that it's that of a, a wealthy man asking his accountant, say, uh, titular Roger, how best to divvy up his riches and his will. 
Anyway, Roger was an early favorite of the bands, as well as Todd Rundgren and his production team. And here is where uh, we can hear the band Sid Barrett's obsession from a few years ago find its full flower. There are time signature changes aplenty, call and response, melodic lines, and some downright wacky sound effects and some sonic treatments, courtesy uh, Earl Mankey. Then we have High C. Here's where fans of Sparks' glam era can really hear those humble beginnings. High C is a driving piano-based rock number in a minor key with um, a lot of 16th notes. But in keeping with the band's musical habits at the time, the song veers without warning into a playful doo-wop vocal interlude and several key changes and time changes throughout. The song showcases some of Ron's more enjoyable lyrics of the period. Um, example, since you left the opera, you just frown a lot and mumble, I'm humble. As the narrator serenades a retired opera singer of whom he's an obvious fan. Then we have fan favorite Fletcher Honorama, another fan favorite. Ron's pulsing organ starts out Fletcher Honorama, and Harley Feinstein matches with an alternating clack and somber cymbal hit, methodically building on this rhythmic structure throughout the song. This is a moody minor key number. It sounds like a dirge um, or a requiem. It sort of is a pre-requiem for a guy named Fletcher who has decided to hold a televised wake before his death. There is the line, telecast in 50 states and brought to you by anti-wrinkledew. Russell croons on this one as the narrator acts as a master of ceremonies in the celebration of the life of the well-known 80-year-old Fletcher. Russell's narrator reads briefly from his will, which mentions Fletcher's living twin, and takes time in the middle of the show to play some of Fletcher's favorite songs. At this point in the song, the band takes us into sort of a dream sequence, and Ron's piano channels like an old Tin Pan Alley or music hall ditty that never was, sounding a lot like a lost Scott Joplin number. When the band takes us to the present, when the band takes us back to the present, they build to a crescendo with Russell's TV presenter character admonishing everyone involved in the production to be sure that the boy don't die by morn, which he repeats ad infinitum. The last song on side one is Simple Ballet. Simple Ballet sounds as advertised. It's a bracing waltz number with heavy emphasis on Ron's piano, punctuated by Feinstein's occasional cymbal crashes. About halfway through the song, a small choir of mini Russells show up to back Russell's own lilting falsetto. Now Ron's lyrics here are starting to show their brand. There's a simple what-if supposition that leads to verses and a chorus of then this and then that and finally something entirely foreseen, which is really enjoyable. In simple ballet, the idea is that ballet is the next big fad to hit the masses. Um, although the character being sung to somehow gets himself into legal trouble near the end, it's not clear to me why. And that is the end of side one. Side two begins with um, a really unusual song for the band. Now, side two starts out with a, an unusual song for the band. Slow Boat is easily the most normal song in the half Nelson canon, if not the Sparks canon. It has a simple lyric about a love lost, 
simple imagery about the titular slow boat sailing the narrator away from the object of his wasted affections. This was the time of ballad AM radio, and it was awash in songs similar to this in sound and theme in 1971. Um, Think about Let It Be or Bridge Over Troubled Water. Now, despite some embarrassment by the band about how straight, maybe even mawkish, the song sounded, Russell believed the song could have been a hit were it not for their record company's indifference. Also, whether an ironic gesture or completely sincere, Russell would perform Slow Boat live wearing a sailor suit and from a papier-mâché boat on wheels pulled to the stage by stagehands. And then we have Biology 2. If the inclusion of the mainstream-sounding slow boat embarrassed the band, then they more than make up for it with the follow-up track Biology 2, which is an, a rare non-male song contributed by Earl Mankey. Mankey really lets his musical influences take the spotlight here. His lead vocals, though it is Mankey who is singing lead, are pitched up at least an octave, sounding like a Randy Chipmunk as he grunts and croons about sex via its connection to meiosis and gene selection. And musically, we have halting, mostly arpeggiated lines uh, that alternate on guitar and then keyboard, and that sort of frames this intentionally bonkers song that very well could have been an inspiration for the later novelty hit Fish Heads by Barnes & Barnes. It was the last Mankey would get to channel his inner Frank Zappa, unfortunately, at least as a member of Sparks slash Half Nelson. It was also, weirdly enough, the first Half Nelson song to receive any airplay on local radio in Los Angeles, much to Russell's chagrin. Then we have the only other holdover from the Half Nelson demo album, Saccharin and the War, and one of just two and a half songs written by Russell. Now, the uh, version here loses some character in the Rungren version from the original demo version, but it does rock harder after the first verse. As Russell described in an interview, the song is about the religious fervor encouraged in women by society to lose weight. And this was in 1971. Descriptions of a cross and a crucified doctor, which raises the question, did this doctor suffer for their perceived sins of being fat. It all brings home Russell's point in a pretty provocative fashion. Next we have Big Bands. This is another song that reached back generations for its musical inspiration. This is another mini epic that pulls together at least five disparate musical sections. The song references Herbert Hoover again and again and again. Um, Bizarrely, fascinatingly, it features a middle eight proto-rap by Russell about three and a half minutes in Um, and generally the song sets things up for the big rock number trademark that closes out the album which is No More Mr. Nice Guys now I know what you're probably thinking and although he hasn't said so himself publicly this is possibly where Alice Cooper got the idea for his 1975 hit No More Mr. Nice Guys is that big rock number that points the way forward for Sparks' glam day soon to come. Mining Ron's seemingly endless well of sexual frustration and the condemnation of what we now call toxic masculinity, very common theme with uh, Ron's lyrics, 
Nice Guys finishes out the album with a bang and finally gives Earl Mankey a chance to really shred on his guitar. There was originally meant to be a 13th song, which was left off for unknown or unspoken reasons. That would have been Jim Mankey's only solo credit uh, plaintive song called I'm an Old Retired Man. Now, I myself have not heard the song, so if anyone listening has ever come across this, come across a recording of it, let me know. Um, maybe the others in the band thought uh, that this song was too similar in theme to Fletcher on Arama and it got the axe. Don't know. The album would have two releases under two different names. They also had two different covers. The original Half Nelson album cover was a work of some pretty innovative pre-photoshopping skills on the part of Larry DuPont based on an idea by Ron. Uh, now he took a magazine ad by GM for their 1969 Oldsmobile that shows a glamorous woman reclining in the back seat. And then he superimposed the head of each band member onto the car windows, which kind of gives the impression of these five long-haired ruffians leering at this poor, unsuspecting lady. Uh, the original uh, composition was in black and white, and DuPont artificially tinted parts of the image, which, to my eyes, does add some uh, playfulness. Uh, by the way, the ad photo I, I did read was used with GM's permission. They did seek GM's permission and received it. Um, for the re-release, the 1972 re-release of the album under the Sparks name, um, there was another band photo, a simpler photo, again in black and white, that graces the foreground with a red brick wall as a backdrop. Um, apparently, Ron was nursing a fascination with brickwork at the time. Having the backing of an actual record label paid huge dividends by the time the band was rechristened as Sparks in 1972. Bearsville decided to release Wonder Girl as a single in July. Remarkably and esoterically, the song caught on big in Montgomery County, Alabama and uh, fought for the top of the charts alongside Gary Glitter's um, now legendary as football chant, Rock and Roll. Soon, the same thing happened in Fargo, North Dakota, and Sparks found themselves playing their first gigs out of state. They even scored their first appearance on American Bandstand, where Mr. Normie himself, Dick Clark, would welcome Ron and Russell back again and again over the years. Before heading back into the studio to record album number two, Sparks had a disastrous experience surrounding a show in Houston. Their rental car broke down in the Mojave Desert, leaving the band stranded until a truck of Mexican tourists saved the day. Later, there was a torrential downpour that made the Texas highways impassable. And finally, although they did manage to play the show in Houston, uh, Russell suffered a concussion on stage with a wooden mallet that appears to be a mishap, which was entirely his own fault. Still, if 1971 was a good year for Half Nelson, 1972 was an amazing year for Sparks. They finally felt like they were on their way to realizing their old manager and friend's three-year-old prediction, this group is going to make it. I'm tired of being called a lunatic. Hello. This is Computer Girl, from the song Computer Girl. Wow. 
Ron and Russell's story just keeps getting more and more interesting. Of course, all your bizarre human habits are interesting to me. You know what else is interesting? Checking out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcastsparks. Or emailing the show at podcastsparks at gmail.com. Coming up, Christian's interview with Monty Malin. Don't forget to listen to Monty's podcast. So important. And read his blog at montysnewblog.blogspot.com. That's Monty spelled M-O-N-T-E. Uh, uh, this, this is, hi, this is Christian, and you are listening to All You Ever Think About Is Sparks, uh, the podcast. And I have with us uh, today Mr. Monty Mallon. Uh, Monty Mallon, a, a friend of the podcast, uh, has been very generous with his, uh, with his uh, time and, um, and attention. He's really helped me um, get my wings uh, with this uh, podcast. And uh, he is going to talk um, a little bit about a couple of uh, projects that he has himself. Uh, one, uh, the most important in regards to this show, of course, would be the uh, Sparks uh, Drummers Project. And um, before we, we get into that, uh, Monty, I just, uh, just want to ask you, uh, when did you... When did you first hear Sparks, the band? When did you discover a, a love for them? What, what's what's your origin story? Well, first of all, uh, Christian, thank you so much for having me as your guest. Uh, I'm really looking forward to talking. I love your podcast. Thank you, thank you. Um, and as far as my origin story, it's probably the same as lots and lots of other people who are about my age, which is uh, hitting 60. And... I saw them back in 1974 on one of the late-night rock shows that they had back then. It was Don Kirshner's rock concert, and just before that, it was uh, the Midnight Special. And the second time I saw them was the Kirshner show, and that's when I saw it, and I just said, this is the best thing I've ever seen or heard. And really, I I have a lot of groups that I like, but they always still have, they still have a very special place in my heart. Right. Um, There's still nothing quite like them. And it's just been so much fun following them. And I, you know, and it just grew into a love affair all the way, going all the way back to the 70s. Yeah. And and you're right. I I have heard that story, uh, a similar story from a a lot of people of, um, you know, your generation. I'm a little younger. I just turned 40. But 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 I've talked to Sparks fans of every age, and they and there and there there is a there's a a similar uh, sense of uh, of of having the, of of making this great find, you know, like the, there's nothing there's nothing quite like their uh, there's nothing quite like their style and their presentation, and I think it really speaks to. Uh, their durability that they're able to have this effect on new generations of fans all the time. So this was, well, uh, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, absolutely. And you know, you, you're watching it when you're a 14 year old kid. And you know, at that time I was listening to, uh, Aerosmith and the Rolling Stones. And that was the yeah. stuff I was listening to and enjoying. And all of a sudden these guys come on with this kind of awkward lead singer, but going all out, giving everything he's got. Yes. And this guy on the keyboards, right. you know, with the, these crazy looks and the whole the whole thing that Ron did, and it's just what is going on here? And then you start to look into it a little bit more, and you find out more about them, and you start getting their past records, and you realize this is really something is going on here. Yes, yeah, I, I had the same experience. Yeah, it's very, very, very striking. And well, one thing that really spoke to me was 
like you were talking about, you've got Russell and, and Ron. They don't slot into anyone's I- idea of traditional coolness. If anything, it was anti-cool <laughs> in, in a way, but it's just so so strong in their own um, you know, u- unique kind of presentation. Oh, yeah. I mean, the presentation was everything. And at that time... You know, you don't know that they went to film school or that they were, you know, all these other things, that they had this big interest in movies and presentations and all of this stuff. You just see it, and it's like, what is going on here? And just for the record, the first album I bought new was Indiscreet. And I remember there was... Oh, well, it's, 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 it's one of the best. And there was a record store in Pittsburgh. They knew me by then because I bought all the previous four albums from then i was in there all the time buying the singles that's what we did in those days and they had when i came in they just had these this copy of indiscreet behind the desk and they said here you go and boy i just took it home and said wow this is so different from the last two and that was part of what made it so interesting to me mm-hmm. yeah i mean if from from the moment you see that cover and there's it looks like there's a plane crash on a little cessna airplane and ron and russell and states of disrepair and disarray it's really it catches your eye and then from the moment you listen and i when i first heard it i immediately was uh was uh, struck by the the opening song um hospitality or hospitality on parade yeah exactly but well we'll we'll get to that in due course on the show uh, so you yourself also uh, have uh, the the Sparks Drummers Project. For, first off, you yourself are a drummer, right? Yes. Uh, and when did you start becoming a drummer? Do you? Know oh, that goes day? that goes way back to the to the nineteen sixties is when I started taking lessons um, with a fellow named Babe Fabrizi, who was a Pittsburgh legend in the, on the drums. And but that goes that's a long story too. <laughs> Uh, well, that's great. So, uh, did you what? Uh, what were your influences at that point? Well, I, you know, I, I, you know, I started out then, and then in high school, I was in the band, and it's really in high school when I picked it up again. And I was a Rolling Stones type drummer, and I listened to Charlie Watts all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, and that kind of style, that kind of groove drumming, is still what I play today, which is very different from what Sparks do. Yes. Um, yeah, there's an element of that, but they that they're not a groove, you know, kind of a blues based or rhythm and blues based right. band in, in the least. They they are their own sound. Yeah. Um but so they were always the outlier and I just loved playing to those those albums. I was not very good at it, but I did didn't stop me. <laughs> so yeah, as you were saying, it's a, I mean it's a really different style. In fact, it seemed like they were diametrically opposed to sounding like anything blues based or or R and B. Uh but uh but you know, but so uh, re- regardless, uh, you became a, a huge Sparks fan, and you decided to reach out to all of the various drummers of Sparks. And of course, if you know uh, about uh, Sparks and their uh, band membership history, you know you understand that they have an almost Spinal Tap uh, like um, spontaneous combustion. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> So right. the, the lifespan of a drummer is not, is fairly short, and, and of course, you know they've they all had very very different sounds. Um, but uh, so it, it's a very basic question. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, why did you embark on this project? 
Well, I, it was around 2014, 2015, I believe. And I, I like a lot of the things, you know, to me, social media is a mixed bag. There's positives and a lot of negatives. But there are some nice positives. And the, one of the, to me, one of the great positives is it gives pretty much anybody a chance to express themselves in so many different ways if they want to do it. And I like that. I've always done that kind of, you know, I've always written for school papers and, and found outlets for, you know, to, to do that kind of thing. And here I set up this blog and I had this idea that wouldn't it be fun to try to interview every single one of those Sparks drummers? Mm-hmm. And I didn't get all of them, but I got most of them. And uh, that was really it. I just thought this would be a really fun thing to do. And I was aware that it was creating a record. Um, and it was just something that seemed like a worthwhile endeavor to me just to hear what they all had to say about their experience with uh, Ron and Russell. And you get to, you had the, you had this chance to put together a, a canon of, of sorts. I mean, like you said, a record. Um, and it, it, I mean, it sounds, when you had that idea, it must have seemed a little daunting. I mean, you didn't have any sort of personal or professional connection to any of these people. Was, were they fairly, A, uh, easy to get their, their contact information, and B, uh, were they fairly approachable people? Well, that's the thing about, it's another thing about the internet and social media. It's really not that hard to track people down. Mm. Um, and the first one that I talked to was Dinky Diamond, who was their drummers in the 80s. And I, I did For track 70s, down a contact. Dinky, uh, he was, uh, wasn't that the Island Years? No, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The oh. first one I talked to was David Kendrick. I right, apologize right, for that. Right. It was David Kendrick, uh, their drummer in the 80s. And I did find his contact, and I sent him an email, and he got back to me right away and said, sure, let's do this. And we had a tremendous talk. And so I thought, right. okay, maybe I can pull this off. Yeah. And the next one I talked to was Harley Feinstein, who's the drummer for the, uh, right now you're looking at the first two albums, and he was the drummer on those two albums. And he was—he had just come off of a extensive podcast that he did, and he was a little concerned that he wasn't—he wouldn't have anything particularly new to say. But in fact, he had tons to say, and he was just a great pleasure to talk to. Yeah, there are a lot of really cool little tidbits. I went back and reread uh, your interviews with uh, uh, with David and Harley and, and a few others. So, going chronologically through, you start off well. I'm in chron in chronology of the band anyway uh you start off with uh ronna franks and she's not very well known you know to to sparks listeners or i don't believe she's a musician uh today any longer but you did decide to interview her and that was pretty interesting too and uh for those who don't know uh she she was a drummer only on the urban renewal project project correct Right. She was. She worked with them, and she served them cookies and milk when they were done playing. And uh, she was just thrilled about it. Um, she sent me pictures. She really was. She. I think she really liked it because she could share it with her grandkids. That's and great. I think she just loved doing it. That's great. Um, yeah. Each one of them brought something special. But I would say this: that yeah. there were some commonalities among them, uh, which which made it really fascinating to me. I mean. They all had a great respect for each other, which is the first thing. They all knew each other's work, and they all held each other in high regard, and none of them would say that they felt they made the best contribution, was always pointing to someone else. Um, they, hold their, they held their time in sparks in very high regard. They felt that was a 
great creative period for the most part. Uh, John Mendelssohn, who I talked to, did not share that view. That's yeah, perfectly I, fine. I that, that's to, perfectly fine. But yeah. uh, the, the, the third thing is they really had a lot of praise for Ron and Russell themselves. They really liked them, and they, they felt like they grew by being with them in a lot of ways. And so overall, they all look back on it as a very positive experience. That's great. And I, I, I definitely did get that impression from uh, uh, most of those uh, interviews, as you said, with the exception of, of John, John Mendelssohn. Um, from, from what I read, he uh, maybe that, uh, I mean, I know they had stylistic differences musically, but I think he was just uh, personality-wise, they, they didn't really jive very well. I would say, say, I would say personality. I would say music. Um, it, although, I think he enjoyed. You know, I think he was well. I, let's say music. But you know what? I really think it was. I think he had the impression he was in a real band. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> and you know, and it was clear that with the Mankies on board and uh, with Ron and Russell, there's so many dominant personalities. And you know, it, after this period that you're looking at now, the Bearsville records. You know, Ron and Russ have been very open that that was the last time they were real democracy as a band. Um, and so the trend was already in place. And I think he felt, you know, there was other things he wanted to do. And I, I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, so I, I, will, I want to add one thing about John. He's one of the right. funniest people on the Internet. I don't know if people follow him or not, but he's just a, a really funny guy and really fun to talk to. Well, I will definitely start following him. Now, he... Okay. he um, went on to be a founding member of John's Children, or was that before? Uh, no, I think that came later, and I think, I, I can't remember, I don't know too much about his history post-Sparks, but I know that he was in a couple bands that he really enjoyed the experience, and of course he went on to be a writer at Rolling Stone magazine, and he had a very successful career there. Oh, wow, cool. I'll definitely check that out. So uh, after John, of course, um, well, I know they... they had a couple of people in the drummer's seat for a very brief period of time. I think there was one that uh, ended up uh, being fired as their drummer, but they kept on as a manager or a publicist. Mike Burns, I Mike think. Mike Burns. Right, yeah. right, exactly. But he didn't, uh, I don't know if he did uh, much of uh, distinction, frankly, as a drummer. Uh, but after that, of course, there was uh, Harley, whom you've uh, spoken with and uh, who I've reached out to as well for an interview for this podcast. Uh, you want to briefly talk a little bit about your experiences uh, uh, speaking with uh, with Harley? Well, absolutely. Um, and basically, you know, the real question is here. Here, here is that this was a band in formation, mm -hmm. right? They were Ron and Russell were still finding their way. Uh, the Mankies were contributing songs um, and, and music, and, and they were still figuring out where they were going with all of this, right? And it was clear that they were not going to be, uh, you know, a blues-based R&B type band, even though they, they thought they sounded like The Who from everything I've read. But in the kinks, and that influence is there. But, uh, you know, they were clearly doing some new things. And I think that you hear that on the very first two records. There's some new things that they're doing. Uh, there are things that aren't normally done by a band putting out their very first record. This was nothing like just a regular pop record with 10 songs that sound similar and come in about two and a half, three minutes. This was a whole different kind of thing. Yeah. And the reason why I'm emphasizing that is because what Harley had to do was figure out what his role was in this band, and he had to figure out how to keep up with the kind of 
intricate arrangements that Ron was already putting together, even at that early stage of his career. So you will hear in a, in a couple places where he's able to just keep a kind of a straight beat, like in a song like Wonder Girl. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, what you hear on those first two albums are songs that go all over the place, come back, you know, logically conclude and, you know, to where they started. They're, they're very holistic. And he had to provide drums for that. And there was no template. Right. All the drummers who came afterwards had a template. He had to basically create the template of what it meant to be a Sparks drummer. To me, that is a fantastic achievement. Right. I, yeah. No, I, I completely agree there. And uh, and also what you mentioned before about in the early stages of the band, there being a lot of strong personalities, not just Ron Russell, but Earl. Uh, I, you know, the more I listen, the more I do my research. I mean, Earl had a huge influence on those uh, first couple of albums. And where does, you know, this fifth wheel where's this odd man out slot into all that and uh i agree that he had he had the unenviable job of not only figuring out what this what the what a sparks drummer sounds like uh but also you know how to you know deal with all of these uh, conflicting and really strong personalities and also like ron and russell they they seemed like they were uh, uninterested at least at first in even having a drummer we're having drums. If you, uh, I mean, I listened to the so-called demo record several times, and there are a few tracks that have no percussion, or at least no real drums. Well, maybe that was their view, but I'm glad they changed their mind on yeah. that. Yeah, um, totally. You know, there's there's some moments where the drums add quite a bit to their music, and you know, and I think that one of the great talents is that they were able because Ron did think in terms of these arrangements and how he wanted all the instruments to play and come in, I think they were able to really use drums to to bring out some of the the power of what they were trying to do. How does Harley's, how is Harley's drum approach and sound distinct from the other drummers in the Sparks Ovier? I think, uh, you know, uh, I, you'd have to ask Carly what he thinks on that. But my feeling is that he was a little bit more of a power drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that comes through on some of the uh, tracks that you hear, like Do Re Mi, uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy, um, Beaver O'Lindy, of course. There's some real, real accomplishments there. and But you hear a, a certain power to it. What I think made him unique and appropriate for Sparks is that he knew when to channel it and when to hold back. Um, if you listen to a song like Fletcher Hanorama, there's a lot of he, he's holding back and creating kind of a just just a gentle jazz groove. If you listen to a song like Big Bands, um, which is on the first album, he uh, he's all you know he keeps up with this arrangement that changes all over the place during the course of the song. I agree. And I think they all have. You know, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, but yeah, you know, big bands in particular. I mean that that song is cobbled together in like a Frankenstein patchwork of different sonic parts and he's doing all kinds of different stuff there um and in fact but by the way when later on i am going to slot in uh portions of the songs that we're talking about uh and uh i I, i'm pulling these from your own curated collection of sparks drummers that you shared with me on spotify is this a good time to give that a uh, plug absolutely okay i did just for you 
just for you and your listeners, I put together a drum list, uh, a, a drum, a curated collection of Sparks drums of songs. All right, a, a curated collection of songs that I feel really have a benefit from great drum parts, either done in the organically in the course of the 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 you know by the band, or when Ron and Russ were in more of an electronic era. I think where they did a really great job of the programming to bring out the the song. Um, and I will make that available to you. And if you, you know, please spread it. And I hope people will listen to it. And I really thought hard about which songs to put on there and to create something that brings out the, the variety as well as the quality of the drumming that they had throughout their career. They always have very high standards. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's a, it's a great collection. Um, I, I've got it pulled up right here and I was uh, listening to it. And, um, by the way, I, I do plan this to be the first of many interviews with you about your about this project uh, because I, I read all the interviews and I've got tons of questions about you know David Kendrick and uh, Hilly Michaels who uh, played with them on Big Beat um, and then I would love to ask you, I don't know if you ever got in touch with, if you were able to reach Keith Forsey, but that guy's drumming on that album almost that almost makes it for me okay i don't know if you want to talk about that now or as opposed to later but you've you've got me on one of my favorite topics oh so, what the hell let me, oh what the hell right um there was a post in facebook a while ago from my good friend paul castro uh, where he said maybe they should have used electronic drums and i i said paul you know i, I agree with you 85 percent of the time on stuff but i gotta respond to this one the album we're talking about, just for the record, is number one in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, to 1979 me, reinvention. Yeah, nineteen seventy nine reinvention exactly. And the drums, the the drumming that Keith Forsey does on that is what to me puts that album over the top. As great as it is, totally having agree. the human drummer there is what puts it over the top. He's one of the two people I was not able to get in touch with. I tried and tried, and at a certain point, you just figure, okay. Not going to happen. Um, but I really wanted to talk to him because the drumming on that album is something so, so special, in, in my humble opinion. And, you know, I, I, I hope maybe someday I'll get to talk to him on my podcast or something. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I sure hope you do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you come back to it again and again and again. Yeah, you know, but, I, you know, I, you move on in life, and, and I'm not really pursuing it actively at this point. But the drumming on that brings out the music in a way that I think that's what my personal view as a drummer is that that's what puts that whole album over the top. I mean, it gives it, it gives it a pulse. Literally, you know, it's, it's the blood of that album. I, ah. well, we'll get into that one as well. Uh, All right. <laughs> but, uh, so, um, uh, Harley Feinstein, uh, yeah. So I went back and listened, of course, I've been listening to the first two, uh, albums uh, a lot for, for where I am in, in the project right now. And um, I read him describe his sound as being more Tom Tommy. Uh, he he's not as say crashy as uh, David Kendrick uh, described himself as being, and I, I I definitely hear a lot of that. And there's a lot of sometimes it sounds intentionally primitive or mm-hmm. constricted. Um, well, I, I think, mean, but I'm not a drummer. Yeah, I mean, I think Harley is you know was doing what the music called for, and that's not always easy. And then you had uh, people who were producing these, like Todd Rundgren, 
who was a very strong personality and had certain things that he wanted. And um, I think Harley was still trying to define his role at that point. So maybe he was a little bit primitive, but I think that he's also, uh, I think I I tend to look at the positive side, which is that he really was able to work with all these producers, work with Ron and Russell, and like you said, all the personalities. And he was able to come up with something, and I think the power that he has really comes through on some of those songs, especially on the second album. Right, yeah. I'm. I again. That's now. I'm listening to um, Woofer and Tweaker's clothing, and there's a lot more variety there. I feel like uh, he's really uh, had a chance to exercise some some muscles that he didn't have the opportunity for in that first album, and and Wonder Girl in particular. Uh, it it is. Um, Again, I like. I want to use the word primitive, and I don't. I you know. I, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just very controlled, and yeah. and it's and it's it's simple. Um, it's and I, I read also uh, recently today, even I believe that he was playing to a tape delay that James Lowe had set up for him. So there's a weird kind of echo to it, but it's also a very basic beat, and he doesn't stray too much from it. And that that kind of control. Uh, really made for a really interesting single and not at all like the kind of rock and roll that you were hearing in 1971. Oh, no, not at all. And I think that that just, you know, sometimes that's all you need to do. And I think it's it was wise of Rundgren and the band and Harley to, to not overdo it. And sometimes subtlety can play, sometimes drummers forget the importance of subtlety. Right. And, you know, and I think it's to his credit that he did take a very subtle role on some of those songs. But I think you also see on Fala Fali and a few of the others mm. um, that we already talked about, like Big Band, that he could do a lot more when called upon to do a lot more. I so I think he was very tasteful, and I, I give him a lot of credit for that. I, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, uh, I, I want to talk about Fala Fali uh, because... Okay. Uh, uh, because uh, when you mean the the words? Well, well, there's that. I don't know what the hell it means. And by the way, uh, I also uh, read in your interview with him that uh, he was kind of, uh, he 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 was not dismissive, but uh, he would be when you asked him about Ron's lyrics. He said, "I don't know. You know, someone would say something in rehearsal one day, and he'd come back the next day and have a whole song about that phrase." Right. Uh, you know, which was I, which was really funny to me. Um, oh yeah, yeah. But uh, Fala Fali, which uh, does have some interesting lyrics, it does, uh, it does appear to be about an incestuous sibling relationship. It very much appears <laughs> to be about an incestuous uh, sibling relationship, yes. But, uh, but, but, but lyrics aside, um, what really got me was the, the drumming in that song, because it sounds to me, I'm, I'm a fan of Krautrock um, and bands like Can. Um, at that time, or actually a few years later, or no, um, or Noi, however it's pronounced, um, and even some early craft work, it sounds to me like the Motorique beat. I don't know if you made that connection. No, I don't. I don't really. Li- that's very interesting. Though. I'd li- maybe I'd li- I'll listen to a little bit of it. Um, no, it's not new music. I normally do listen to. So that's very intriguing. Yeah, it was interesting to me when I heard it because I thought it sounded. It sounded very German, and uh, and a little uh, huh. and very much ahead of its time. Yeah, I would definitely go back and listen to, especially Can, uh, around that time. Uh, I thought it sounded a little bit a lot like it. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm looking at your um, 
playlist again, and, and I've got Fletcher Honorama. That's definitely a big fan favorite, Fletcher Honorama. Uh, is there anything in particular that strikes you about what Harley's doing on that song? No, um, but again, I think it's just the, the tastefulness of it. It's just a nice, simple backbeat, you know, almost a jazz feel, and very, very much in tune with the song itself. Yeah. Um, and that's why I included it, because a lot of the ones on the list tend to be some of the rockers, and they have, you know, kind of the big drum parts. But I think it was important to show how, you know, the playing could be subtle as well, and how wonderfully precise he was in that. And so I wanted to make sure he got his... Uh, his just just kudos for that. Just kudos, yeah, yes. yeah. It's def, It's uh, I, I'm a big fan of that song as well. And then of course we have uh, No More Mister Nice Guys, uh, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, which has that big end of the record, um, big rock move. Right. There. He really gets to to thrash on that one. Um, and then you have big bands, which we discussed as well. And then from the from the Woofer and Tweeters clothing album, uh, we have Beaver O'Lindy. Yeah, now let me just make a comment about sure. that one. I mean, this is you know where you start to see uh, Ron really playing with the arrangements in some interesting ways, because basically there's no drums for the first half of the song, mm -hmm. and then he just announces himself with this tremendous single-stroke roll, one of the my my all-time favorite single-stroke roll. It's just so powerful, and then drums are just killing it for the rest of the song. I mean, there's a couple places where there's no drums, but basically for the rest of the song, he's just killing it. And I, I thought that was something worth uh, kind of listening to and just having some fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I like that too. I'll def definitely be slotting that one in here. Uh, and then we have, um, you also have on here, uh, Nothing is Sacred. Yeah, and the, the comment I would make about that is, I think this shows, uh, oh, I started to play it accidentally. Oops. Um, I was looking at the list too, and I pressed play. That's okay. So if you it. hear a little, if you hear a little music in the back, that now you know why. But with nothing is sacred, um, what I find so fascinating about that is the last half of the song, where I guess on purpose. But you know, not only do you really get uh, Russell's full-throated falsetto, I think for the first time on these two records, but you get they play with the tempo and they just speed it up and speed it up. And if you listen to his drumming. He goes from a regular drum beat to cut time, and he's just keeping up and keeping up and pushing it. And I, it's just so much fun from my perspective as a drummer. It's fun to listen to how he's trying to keep up with the ever-accelerating tempo of that song. I, I think he does a great job there, too. I, I tend to think a lot of positive things when I hear this. Yeah, yeah, so do I. Yeah. It, 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 it's, again, he just has so much control over his tempo. Yeah. Uh, and then the last one that I have is Do, Re, Mi, and... If you, if you want an example of Harley on the Tom Toms, I don't think you can get a better one than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's just so much fun to listen to. It so. is a lot of fun. I, I, I've wondered, again, it's fun to listen to, but I wondered why they decided to even record that, include that on, on the record. It's just such an off-the-wall um, choice. I mean, you know, it's uh, <laughs> Rodgers and Hammerstein, wasn't it? it? It's better than fingertips. It's better than fingertips. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm with you there. I mean, I, I love listening to it. I mean, I I didn't think you could take Do Re Mi to those to those extremes, right? Uh, but it's a well, great collection. And then, of course, uh, as as it goes on, you know, we get into the you know, Come On to My House and Propaganda and Discreet, and it goes through Big Beat with Hilly Michaels, and then of course all the way to the most recent stuff with um, 
um, with the Steve Nister, yeah, uh, Steve Nister and 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 company, yeah. And I know you you want to hold off on talking about all that. Um, uh, that that's great. Um, but yeah, I try to really list, you know, try to do it comprehensively. But um, you know, these aren't necessarily my all-time favorite Spark song, right. Spark songs either. By the way, I mean, but I really tried to keep it focused on what I was trying to do for your listeners and also for me. I listen to it all the time. Yeah, me too, <laughs> so, especially lately. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> that's kind of all I've been hearing, like, oh, my fiance is sick of, uh, sick of hearing Sparks around the house. So. She's a good sport. Well, I, I I listen to believe it or not, I listen to when I'm driving with my wife, and we've we've had to make a lot of uh, road trips lately for some family reasons. And I have another set list of all my favorite country songs. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and my wife is very very patient, but I notice after about 45 minutes or so, she gets a little fidgety, and I, I say, <laughs> okay, time to move on from the uh, time to move on from the country songs. There you go. Well, uh, I live in Texas, so uh, I hear that uh, coming from all sides. Yeah. How far are you near Austin? I'm in Austin. Oh man, I, that's one. I have a. Oh, this is off topic, and that's feel free right. to cut it from the conversation. But I have a goal of traveling to all the great U.S. music cities, you know, and Austin is real high on my list. We're definitely very, very proud of our our heritage and. Uh, yeah, our our our, our contr- contributions as we see them to music culture. It's a good town, and it is a great music town. I, I agree, and I'm I'm proud to be an Austin native. Austin, that's you're an awesome Austinite. Yeah, awesome Austin. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, so I guess we'll uh, we'll take a couple of minutes to wrap up because we have we are we're gonna we're, we'll, we will spend plenty of time you know uh, getting into the albums uh, for the island years and, and after that um, in due course uh, pretty soon anyway uh, but uh, so this part of the saga of course ends with Ron and Russell uh, with the Mankeys and, and Harley did a tour of uh, the UK correct and then they all came back. Um, and that, that's yeah. correct, right? The, the, all of the original band did go do a tour of the UK before coming back to California? I believe that is correct, yeah. And then yeah. It, so, yeah. I, I'm not 100% sure if Ron and Russell came back and then went back or if they or stayed. They just stayed. But, but that's correct. They did a big tour. So, yeah, so then uh, the, the Mankeys and, and Harley found out, I suppose, unceremoniously that they, they were no longer a part of the band and I'm sure that was um, I'm, I'm sure that was difficult for them when they were feeling like uh, they had some momentum as a band Well, I, I'm, I'm sure you're exactly right um, the one thing I would say is that they all you know, not just Harley but all the drummers, you know would love their time and they kind of, they weren't shocked when Ron and Russell went their own way, um, they, that doesn't mean they liked it, but they weren't they weren't shocked. And I remember uh, one of the things that you'll you'll see there is that I had it on the blog, by the way, is that I had a lot of conversations with some of the other people who played with them too. Like there's a, a long, extensive interview with Martin Gordon, and uh, when uh, I bassist, uh, yeah, on Komodo, the the Island Records, or maybe just yeah. Komodo. Uh, just kimono yeah, okay. and a couple of the others and uh you know they they kind of understood the dynamic they they 
they realized over, over time, let's put it that way, the dynamics of the band. So I think when Ron and Russ went their own way, as they did repeatedly, mm-hmm. I think that they weren't shocked by it, right. even if they weren't happy about it. Well, and I'm sure that each, each successive drummer understood the deal more and more. Uh, but regardless, that's good. I'm glad uh, that you know Harley has uh, fond memories of the time, and um, and today uh, he is a practicing attorney in the San Diego area. Uh, I'm just saying all this because I know it's public information. Right, right. Um, and that you've had uh, a couple of conversations with him, and I'm, I'm hoping that we'll uh, have him on this uh, this the show as well. Um, uh, before he, he still plays with a couple local bands too, by the way. Oh, really? So oh, okay. he stays busy. Yeah. But what will what do you know about that? Are they uh, one of them is called Wag Halen. Uh, I don't remember the name of the other, but he's he just loves playing, and I don't know how active he still is, but you know he uh, he loves playing, and he has a couple local groups, and he plays in the area. That's really fantastic. Like I said, it is. It really is. I hope yeah. you hear uh, more from him about that. Um, you have a podcast of your own, of course. Uh, and uh, would you mind uh, t- um, introducing that? Just talking about that real quickly. Well, uh, sure. Be quick it, either. <laughs> Take your time. Well, no, I mean, yeah, you, you've given me a lot of time here, so I want to. I don't want to be. I don't want to take too much of your time. But it's called "So Important" with an exclamation point. It's available on on pretty much all the major carriers. It's a small scale thing. Um, I just like to talk to people who have an interesting story to tell. My basic thesis is that everybody has an interesting story to tell. Some people want to tell it, some don't. That's fine. But some people, you know, you just talk to folks about things that they're doing, and it can be really fascinating. Um, And there's quite a bit of music on there. I talked, for example, to a band called The Sweet Lizzie Project, Mm -hmm. and they are out of uh, Nashville. And But they came from Cuba Mm -hmm. a couple years ago. They were sponsored by Roel Malo of the Mavericks, or they were brought over by Roel Malo of the Mavericks. And they were the last Cuban band to get a work visa before the current administration clamped down. Mm-hmm. And they are fascinating to hear how they approach their music. And then there's people who talk about all kinds of other issues that are important to them. So if people want a link, I mean, it would be fine to share it. That would be great. Um, but it's just something I do for a pastime. Yeah, no, it's great. There, you, I mean, you've, you've in- interviewed people from all Different walks of life. I, I I listened to a recent one where you had an interview with uh, uh, with the I don't know what his position was exactly uh, if it was a government position, but he had a lot of um, he studied the uh, uh, he studied the Cold War. Uh, the 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 fellow who discussed the U.S. Soviet uh, scientific cooperation. The scientific cooperation. That's yeah. That's yeah, the, it's uh, it's something that I used to be involved in a few years back. And he wrote a book about it, and he just had he'd been doing it for many, many years, and he just had wonderful stories, and we talked about why that kind of cooperation can be important. Um, so it, yeah, it's all over the board, which means that it doesn't have a natural audience, which is something I do think about now and then. Um, you know, if it was all about knitting and I could go out to the knitting community, I'd probably it would probably be more successful by traditional standards of podcast success. But um, yeah, well, you know, you hey, here's see- a new stitch we're going to discuss today. Yeah, but it's, uh, but uh, you know, I do this for fun. I do it in my spare time. I do it to try to br- let people bring their stories out, and uh, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Well, that's great. Well, I'm, I'm happy you're doing it, and it's a and it's a lot of fun to listen to. Oh, well, thank uh, you. That's called uh, so important uh, with an exclamation uh, point, and uh, the uh, 
aforementioned uh, Sparks uh, Drummer's Project. Uh, those are all on your blog, Monty's blog. Uh, do you want to give the URL, the link for that? Sure. It's Monty's new blog at uh, dot blogspot.com. I think, you know, I think that's what it is, but if you presented a link in your show notes, right. I think that would do it. <laughs> I think that's right, but uh, that I'll, yeah. but I'll do it. Um, Monty, I'm so glad that we were, we were successful tonight. <laughs> we finally got a, an interview where the sound levels were where we wanted them to be. And uh, I'm, I really appreciate your time, and I'm really looking forward to doing this again as we go forward in the Sparks catalog. Well, this was great, and I really enjoyed it. And it's obviously a topic that both of us love talking about. So if I'm at your disposal, anything I can do to help, or, you know, uh, I'm happy to do. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much, man. You have a good night. Okay, you too. Thanks again. Thank you.